Well, good morning again. We, uh, we are going to be in the book of Exodus. We're starting a new series this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, we just, we just got out of the One Another series uh, for the summer. And we were looking at all, some of the One Another passages that teach us how to live out the gospel as a people of God. And, and now we are going to be in the book of Exodus. So one of the things I just want to say right off the bat, we believe that all of God's word is, is profitable for, uh, for us, for God's people. It is, it is truth. And um, a, as we dig into Exodus, we, we also think the Old Testament is part of God's word. It's not a lesser part of God's word. It is God's word. And so you can turn there, first chapter of Exodus, I just want to ask you this question as we start this morning through this series that is going to teach us how God delivered his people to worship. God delivered his people to worship him. And I want to ask you, why do you come to church every Sunday? I think I've asked that question before. Why do you come to church every Sunday? Just take a moment to think about that. Do you, do you come merely for uh, tradition? Do you come merely for community? I just want to suggest that one of the reasons we come to church every Sunday is because we're trying to make sense of life. We're trying to put ourselves in the bigger story, right? We're trying to make sense of our life. We're trying to make sense of our sins, our, the things we've done wrong this week. We're trying to make sense of our pain. We're trying to make sense of the love and wonder we feel. And for some of us who have put our faith in Christ, we understand that all of those pieces of the puzzle actually fit together in this one great story of the Bible. This one great story that God has come to make people worship him and in their failure, redeem them and make them worshipers of him again. One paradigm of salvation that Exodus is going to talk to us, is going to tell us about, is that God is delivering, the sovereign Lord is delivering a people to worship his name, to worship him. And so we're going to look this morning at uh, Exodus chapter 1, one through, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to set Exodus in the context of the Bible. This one great story. This, you know, the, some, the reason some of us come to church is to put our life, to make sense of our life. We believe the Bible actually makes sense of our life. It's telling us something about who you are, your sin, your, your past, your, your pain, even your love and wonder. What's it all for? God is saying that he is going to make, he can make sense of it for you. And we're going to look at that through just three big headings this morning. One great story, one big promise, and one faithful God. One great story, one big promise, and one faithful God. So Exodus chapter 1. Hear what Holy Scripture says. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all their generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is God's word. So this one great story, as you can see, it's an, it may feel like an odd way to start a book, right? A book of the Bible. These are the names. And when we see those, when we see those words, we have to, re, we have to think, why, are, why would Moses, the author of Exodus, why would God have Moses start a book this way? With a genealogy. Why does he do that? Well, I'm going to argue that it's because this is a part of a greater story. Exodus is a part, is a, an integral and important part of one great story, one grand story that the whole Bible is about. And Exodus is a crucial part of that story. It gives us the paradigm for salvation, what God is doing through the, through the misery, deliverance, and, and worship, and the thanksgiving of his people. So he says, these are the names. Those first words are actually the title of the, the Hebrew Bible. It's just the, the first six Hebrew words are the title for, for Exodus. It's these are the names. And the people who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, into the Septuagint, uh, they chose to, to re, not rename it, to, to name it Exodus. It's a, it's a Greek word for sort of a coming out, a deliverance story. It makes a lot of sense. And that's what the story is all about. It's, uh, it's connected, though, to this larger story. So th- you, you can see, you, you would think that just by reading the, the first couple of verses. So it, it, but these first couple of verses set for us sort of the plot, the character in place of the plot of the story. It's a continuation of something that's gone on before. And if you're familiar with the Christian Bible... You'll know that what came before is a book called Genesis. And if you found Exodus, you'd probably see Genesis on the very other page. But what this text is telling us is that whatever God is doing, he is going to do through a family, through descendants. And these descendants, these offspring, as as older virgins call them, the seed of these other people... They are a result and a continuation of what God has started in Genesis. We just pick up our plot and we plop it right in front of Genesis. And, and we, we, we remember that Genesis, the beginnings, are the beginning of our story. Just a couple of things as we read this. I'm in, I'm, there's a certain way I'm interpreting this book. Uh, that, and I just want to be upfront about that, that will help you understand where we're going. That we believe, that I believe, as I'm interpreting, that I believe this book is true or real history. 
This isn't um, historical fiction. It's not based on a true story. Believe that this is real history. It's true. Everything in Exodus is true. And, and, and we just get that from, from Timothy, from Paul's words to Timothy, that every, every book of the Bible, every passage of Scripture is profitable. It's inspired by God. It's God-breathed, right? God breathed out these words to men. He, he sort of moved them along, Peter tells us, as they were writing, to use their own words, their own vocabulary. So God is using Moses, his own personality, his own words, his own vocabulary to write everything that he wants Moses to write. This is God-breathed literature. But it's a great story. And it's not fiction. It's real history. So you should know, if you have questions about Exodus, I have the same questions, and by faith, I'm believing that whatever is written is true, because this is God's word. So it's real history. The second thing is that it's not only history, this history has a meaning behind it. It's a theological history. This is a history with a point. Uh, Exodus doesn't say everything that happened during that time, but what it does say is written for us to understand more and believe better about who God is. So it's not just true history, it's theological history. This is telling us something about God. The whole point of this is to show that God is bigger and greater than all the other kings, the wannabe kings in the universe. That God has power to overrule all the other gods. And that this God cares about a people and is going to use even their suffering and heartache to deliver them to bring praises back to him. So it's true history, it's theological history, and it's Christological. You say, okay, maybe I agree with those first two points, but I'm not sure about the last one. So I just, I just want to remind you that every text in the Bible, according to Jesus, every, every passage in the Bible in some way is pointing us to Jesus. Right? We, we don't necessarily find his name on every page, but in some way it's telling us something about this one who will come and, and provide this great salvation. Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus tells the two disciples this very thing. They're sad because Jesus has died and left them. And Jesus tells them, he tells them, he opens up the Psalms, beginning with Moses and the, and the Psalms, he opens up to see how the whole Bible was about Christ. And we're going to find that Exodus is actually about Jesus Christ, finally, providing a paradigm for our salvation. And then I, just as an evidence that Exodus is actually about Jesus, Jude 5. Jude tells these friends to watch out for false teachers. And, and part of his line of argument is this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So according to Jude, who saved a people out of Egypt? You could say it. 
Yes, thank you. <laughs> Jesus did. This book is a true history with tellings about God's great plan for the, for the world, how he's going to do it through Christ. That's the one great story. The one great story leads us to the sort of the plot line of the Bible. And that shows us that there, it, the plot line of the Bible is based on this one big promise. Now, second point, one big promise is going to be the longest. The third point will be the shortest of them all. So you'll be helped to have Genesis in front of you, and I'm going to be flipping to some appropriate passages in Genesis. Genesis 1.28, God has created everything. You know, on the sixth day he creates man in his own image, and in the image of God he created them male and female. So when I say man, I'm meaning male and female, mankind. And God blessed them, that is mankind, in verse 28. And God said to them this mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this one big promise actually starts as a command. It's the first command. And that is to be fruitful and multiply. God's created everything very good. And what he wants his, his new creation, his image bearers, right? These people are created in the image of God. What he wants these image bearers to do is to fill the earth, to populate the earth with other image bearers. The Garden of Eden is, 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 should be viewed as a temple. The whole earth is God's temple. And he wants it filled with image bearers that will bring worship to him. So how will they do this? How will Adam and Eve do this? Through love, vulnerability, and intimacy of the marriage relationship. With one another, their marriage would be a worshipful obedience. This is how God created the earth. And this is how he's going to, to bring glory to his name, to his great name. By a loving relationship between a man and a woman, producing offspring, producing seed that will fill the earth with more worshipers of himself. Their offspring, their seed would fill the earth like stars fill the sky. The creation mandate starts this one big promise. It's it's, uh, it's actually predicated on something God does. He blesses them. He blesses them. And this is the paradigm of salvation. He blesses, and then he tells them something to do. He doesn't tell them something to do in order to get a blessing. He blesses them and then says, be fruitful and multiply, because they can only do it through his blessing. But then something happens. Something insidious and evil. The fall. In chapter 3 of Genesis, the serpent comes in and he deceives the woman. And the woman, having eaten of the tree that God said, do not eat of, she gives to her husband. And her husband, instead of leading out in good authority, has abdicated that authority and stood by and let the woman listen to the serpent who's rebelling against God. And the creation order is inverted. 
and in pain and frustration, now the curse comes in. The failure that Adam and Eve brought into this world brought a curse. But it brought a curse on the serpent first. You can see that in, in verse 14. After the Lord found out, I mean, he already knew, but right, as the story progresses and, and they tell the Lord what happened, the Lord curses the serpent first. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. You on your belly, you shall go and in dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So, God brings a curse on the serpent. He brings pain and frustration to Adam and Eve in their marriage roles. And the question I think we should be asking in the middle of all this is what about that blessing? What's going to happen to the blessing that God pronounced on Adam and Eve? What will happen even though they sin and they fail? Is it all going to be cursed again? Is it, all, is it all cursed now? And you might wonder that very same thing as you watch the news, uh, as you, you see the polarization of our society more and more, as you, as you see evil happening and abounding and abounding and, and the killing and the murdering and, and the incarcerations and the, and, and the abuse of authority and the, the hatefulness towards authority. And you wonder the same thing. What about the blessing? What about the blessing, God? But as the fall brought a curse, it also brought a hint of hope. And in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we see that right in the middle of cursing, God brings a hope. Now, you have to be a discerning reader to, to find this hope, but it is there. In, in, uh, in verse 15, God says, after he curses the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here in the backdrop of the of the darkness of sin and failure, here comes the light of hope. How is this hope? How, how, how is there any hope here? Friends, there are, there are two seeds coming out. The theological term for this is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this seed, this seed imagery is going to carry the narrative of the Old Testament through. It's going, to, it's going to help those who only see darkness to see, wait a minute, what is happening here between these two peoples? The serpent deceiver has a seed. And he is cursed, and his head is going to be bruised by the heel of the seed of the woman who will be the serpent crusher. God is, is promising this one big promise that he is going to bring salvation through the seed of the woman. But there's consequences for sin, though. There are consequences to sin. In Genesis 3, 16 through 11, and, and really the whole Bible is a story about this multiplication of pain. This multiplication of, of evil. See, with the, 
the multiplication of mankind, the seed of the woman who would be the salvation, came a multiplication of pain. This is what happened to the woman. He said that in childbearing, you will have multiplied pain. So in order to fill the earth with more worshipers is now going to come through pain. And her desire is going to be towards Adam. And Adam is going to rule over her. And the, and the thought here is that he would either rule by abusing his authority or abdicating his authority. And we all of us have known people in authority have done both of those things. And both of them are an abuse of authority. So the loving submission that God wanted from Eve to Adam turned now to suspicion. And the loving authority that God had for Adam to lay down his life for his wife turned to oppression. Sin has ugly consequences. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? This is like one of those, those great movies that, that, that leave you hanging for a while. Right? One of those novels that you don't know quite how it's going to all turn out. Is it going to be good or is it not? Maybe this is what your life feels like. You only see pain and frustration and heartache. And you wonder, how's this going to turn out? I just sang about promises in that are yes and amen in Jesus, but I haven't experienced any good in my life. This is sin's consequence, friends. And we must ask the question, how is it going to turn out? How will God keep his promise? This sin's consequence is a story of death. It's a story of death. And if you just trace the narrative, you, you turn the page to chapter 4, you can see that these worship, these image bearers that were supposed to be worshipers are now turned to murderers. Cain kills his brother Abel over a sacrifice. The multiplication of men has become the multiplication of evil. So much so that you flip the chapters over just a few pages, and in chapters 6 through 8, the evil has gotten so bad that God said, the, the thoughts of people's mind <coughs> are only evil continually. So what are you going to do, God? What's, what are you going to do in this story? Well, he wipes out the face of the earth with a flood. Except for one man, Noah, finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And through Noah, the seed of the woman is preserved. So will God be faithful to his promises? You see an ark, you see a rainbow, and you should remember that God is faithful to his promises. And in chapter 9, God repeats the mandate, this creation mandate. <coughs> in verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, what are the next words? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he asks, is God done with his people? And the answer comes back, no, I'm not. I'm starting over with Noah. And God gives Noah this covenant sign in verses 12 through 17 in chapter 9 of this bow. 
we, we know it as a rainbow, but we shouldn't actually think of it as a rainbow primarily. The, the word used here in the rest of the Old Testament is a word used for a battle bow. It's a, it's a bow you use in war to shoot the enemy. In Psalm chapter 11, in verse 2, it says this, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. Same word as ra- this rainbow. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrows to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And what happened in this covenant sign, God says, I promise never to destroy the earth again by this flood. And this covenant sign was like a battle bow. And do you notice where the bow is cocked and aimed? It's aimed at God himself. The arrow is bent back. It's ready to be released. God has promised, I will never destroy the earth like this again. And the covenant promise is yes and amen in Christ because God took the judgment of that arrow. God said that's what he would do and that's what the cross is, brothers and sisters, friends. If you're not a Christian, the cross reminds us that that arrow was released on Jesus Christ. All the judgment that mankind deserves, the sin, the evil that deserves his wrath being poured out on them, was released on Jesus Christ so that you could find salvation, so that you could have redemption, so that you could be brought into the family, so this story of death would not be your story. Your story would be a story of life because Jesus gave up his life by taking the judgment on himself. All the promises in Christ Jesus, are yes and amen. That didn't stop mankind and its evil. Just continuing on in the story of Genesis 11, we see the story of a rebel city being built up called Babel. And they get together, these people get together, and they said, let's build a city up to God himself. And the story's kind of funny because God says, you know, if we let these people, they, they are going to become something not good, <laughs> is the paraphrase. But God has to come down to look on this great tower that they built. God has to come down, and in judgment, he judges these people. And while he judges them, he fulfills his promise. His judgment to them is to disperse them all throughout the world. And in this judgment, his, his blessing on the earth is fulfilled. They, they cover across the face of the earth, and they, and they are filling it. No man, no government, brothers and sisters, friends, do not fret governments in this world. Do not fret rebel cities. God is going to use all of it for your good and his glory. We can pray for our government. In fact, we're commanded to pray for them for kings and people in high positions, so that we may live peaceable lives, godly and dignified. You do not have to fret governments. God looks down and he scoffs at them, and he uses them as pawns to do his will. As they're dispersed over the face of the earth, the next question, God, how are you going to keep your promises? How will you bless 
And the answer is, in chapter 12, that he is going to bless through a family. Started with this man named Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. How, how is God going to bless the earth and fill it? He's going to do it through a man, Abram, and his offspring. Chapter 12 is the promise made. Chapter 13 is the promise expanded, saying he will give these people, he will give Abram, his family, a land. But do you know something? Abram never saw the land. Abram, Abram never got to, to, to purchase the land like, like, he was, like he, his family would in the future. A Abram never got the full fulfillment of the promise. But in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, A Abram's starting to think that maybe he knows how the promise should be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled through his servant. And God says, no, it's not going to happen that way. He said, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, Abram, I am your shield and reward. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer from, of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Count the stars, Abram. Count them, and you will see. My promises are, are going to be fulfilled, just the way I state them. And Abram believed the promise, and God counted it to him as righteousness. The question. So our kids, you can see in your, in your handout, our kids are learning about where sin comes from. Comes from man's disobedience. That's what they're learning right now in their class. They're also learning about God's goodness. So the question is, will man's sin have the last word? And the answer comes as a resounding no. And how will it happen? Another sign. God gives them another, gives Abram a sign. As, as, as Abram is, is old in age, when the sun goes down at the end of chapter 15 and the dark is overtaking him, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God had, had made a covenant with Abraham, and, and the covenant sign for him with, with this, uh, during this time was that he would, uh, he would fulfill his covenant, uh, and he offered uh, animals. He, he, he said, kill the animal, split it, and, and normally what would happen is the participants of the covenant would walk through the animal pieces together, saying, if, if we uh, do not fulfill our end of the covenant, 
that we should be like what happens to the, these pieces. But God puts Abraham to sleep and walks through the animal pieces alone and says, not if I break my covenant, but when you break your covenant, I will be destroyed just like these animals. I will be broken in two just like these pieces of the animal. And this will be a sign to you. God has promised and is fulfilling his promises in himself. So this is not only a story about death. This is a story about promise, about hope, about how God is going to make all things new. This one big promise, friends, points us to one faithful God. Quickly, verse 7. He says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You know, as the story continued, Abraham did have a son. His name was Isaac. The promise was reiterated to Isaac. Isaac had two sons. The promise was reiterated to Jacob over Esau. And Jacob had 12 sons named in Genesis chapter 35. And those 12 sons, in order to escape the famine of their land, came to Egypt, where they had already sent their brother as a slave. And the question is, will God fulfill his promise to have the seed of the woman bruise the head of the serpent? Will he do it? Will, will he continue his blessing? To be for his people to be fruitful and increase greatly and multiply and grow exceedingly strong in the land being filled with them. Will he do it? And Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 says, the story is to be continued. It's continuing, friends. And to this very day, it's continuing. Because we, we hear from, from Jesus and from the apostles that not all Israel is true Israel. But those who believe in their hearts, like Abraham, are sons of Abraham. So if you, friend, brother, sister, if you put all of your hope in Jesus Christ alone, you don't try to pay for your own sins. Your sins are paid for by Jesus Christ, and you repent of them and turn to him. You are children of Abraham, and the land is being exceedingly filled with Abraham's seed. But it's not just about us, friends. In a moment in time, the seed of the woman was born at just the right time. Just the right time. In the face of post-birth abortion again, the seed of the woman now finds rescue and respite in Exodus. See how God is turning and making all things new? This seed of the woman finds respite and, and rescue and exodus, and out of exodus comes his son. And Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, did his work. His heel was bruised on that cross. But in the cross, that promise was fulfilled and will be finally fulfilled when God puts all things under his feet and he crushes the seed of the serpent. He's making all things new. He is doing it. And none of this would have happened if God didn't preserve his seed in Exodus 1, 7, and throughout the book of Exodus. This great 
book of providence, of God's sovereign glory, of him making himself known and loving his people, of raising up deliverers, of raising up a deliverer who will speak all the words of God. God has showed us in, in this book already in the first seven verses, he's more than capable to keep his promises. And just like we sung, all of his promises are yes in Christ. Just like Logan told us, they find their fulfillment in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Friends, if, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I love old hymns. I thought they'd be laughing throughout the congregation. Yeah, we know, Doug. Uh, and uh, an old hymn, uh, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, was written by a man named George Matheson. George Matheson um, began to go blind in seminary. And he, his fiance said she didn't want to be married to uh, a man who would uh, be blind. And uh, so he lived with his sister for a time. His sister took care of the house. And, but there were t there, the time came when his sister got married and she left the house. And he, he recollects of, of, of this time and says there's something uh, of a terrible sadness passed between him and the Lord. And he said he, it was almost like this hymn was dictated to him. It was, oh, love that will not let me go. He says in, I think it's the third stanza, oh, joy that seekest me through pain. I dare not ask to hide from thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That, morn, that morning shall tearless be. Well, friends, I, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're like George Matheson, and there's a terrible sadness between you and the Lord because of some unfulfilled expectation in your life. Maybe you have felt like God has failed to keep his promise to you. Or maybe you're just waiting. Maybe, maybe you're like, it's not that God won't keep his promise, but it would be nice if he did it now. And you're just waiting. But waiting is hard. Right? You who are waiting for children to be born. You who are waiting for God to bring you that right spouse. You who are, who are, are waiting for these, these feelings of inadequacy to pass. You who are waiting to feel... To, to, for these feelings of, of hate to run its course. You who, who feel unworthy. Look to Jesus. Look to this faithful God. Sing with George Matheson. Oh joy that seekest me through pain. That's a word of faith, friends. Are you in pain? Look at the great story, the big promise, and the faithful God and say, I know there must be joy there. I know there must be joy behind all of this pain. So joy that seekest me through pain, I dare not hide myself from thee. 
Now, tra- and then trace the rainbow through the rain, friends. The, the rain, the, the pain, the, everything that feels in vain to you. Trace the covenant promise of God through all of this. The rainbow is just not just some pretty thing that we, we should put on a postcard. The rainbow is a covenant sign that God said he would unleash his wrath on his son. So trace it through your pain, through your loneliness, through your anger, through your defeat. Trace it through your happiness, through your joy, through your melancholy. Trace the rainbow through the rain and feel. Let it work on your emotions that this promise is not in vain. The promise is not in vain. God made a big promise. He delivered it in Jesus Christ. And it's coming at you with all of its glory through his spirit in the word. And feel the promise is not vain. That mourn, that mourning is going to be tears. It's going to be nothing but joy when Jesus wipes the tears from our eyes. Look to him. Read the great story, believe the big promise, find rescue and relief in the one faithful God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, only you know best how to apply this to our hearts. We ask that you, in all of your ways, all of the ways that we're unaware of, you would be working in us. Use these words to convince us of your sovereign power to work for your glory and our good. Convince us this happens through Jesus. It happens through suffering. Through much suffering and tribulation do we enter the kingdom. And help us to believe the promises. Trace them through the rain. And believe that these promises are not in vain. Convince us of your faithfulness, oh God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.